Well, one of the amazing things about Jesus and the scriptures is the ability to talk about multiple future events at the same time. Last week, we began what we called a, an introduction to Jesus' extended teaching on the end times, but he doesn't cover everything. He leaves a lot of it uh, to the apostles after he uh, ascends to heaven. And, and we, we said that there's a, a large diversity of views on Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. And so we, there's even within the views, there's diversity of views. And so we, we, can't, we can't really cover them all. If we were in Bible college, we might try. We'd do a whole semester, and we'd, we'd do one day on one view, one day on another view. We'd do views within views. And then we would, do, we would go through each verse, and we'd look at all the Old Testament and New Testament verses that could be connected to it. And so we're going to try and do it all in one day today. Some of you don't look as excited as I am about it. And, and so uh, some people we discussed last week believe that all of these events were fulfilled in 70 AD when the Romans came in and basically uh, turned Jerusalem into a parking lot, including leveling the temple. And, and many others believe that it's still in the future. We also discussed that m many Bible scholars in this day and age are coming to the place that we call a mediated position, where both are true. And, and I could see where a lot of this was fulfilled. I mean, one of them is clearly fulfilled prior to 70 AD that we're going to talk about Jesus' prophecy that he makes. Um, but I believe that most of the stuff is still in the future. Now, we said last week it's okay to disagree lovingly on the timing of such things. And, you know, I joked and said, well, when I'm right, I won't, I won't brag in heaven, I promise. But, but, it's, but it is important. Some of us were raised in different faith traditions or we come to different conclusions. And, you know, you read one view and you think, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And then you read somebody who disagrees with it and you're like, well, of course they disagree with it. And so it can be, it can be rather daunting for sure. But uh, one thing we do agree on, we do agree on that Jesus will return. That is, that is, a, is a doctrine of the historic faith that we do believe in the second coming of uh, Jesus Christ. And again, the, the, the disagreement becomes in the timing. But in terms of how Jesus talks about it uh, pastorally, there's three words I want us to focus on today, and it's going to take us a long time to get there. I, I understand that. And, and the three words are also the title of the message, prepared, persecuted, and persevering. Prepared, persecuted, and persevering. Back in chapter 23, Jesus was teaching in the temple. And the temple was a very symbolic place for the Jews because it represented the presence of God. And when Jesus Christ himself, God, became a man, he went into the temple. He was rejected by the religious leaders. So in a sense, the temple was rejecting uh, the Lord, and we'll see that's going to be symbolized by the fact that he's going to leave it, and we'll see that in a bit. Back in chapter 12 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus claimed that he was greater than the temple, and by that he means that he is the true place where God meets with his people, uh, not the building, and Jesus proved that by the miracles that he did, but ultimately by rising from the dead. As we move into chapter 24, Jesus is leaving the temple again, and, and and, and, and when God leaves the temple, as we, we, we see in the Old Testament times, particularly right before the Babylonians uh, came in, uh, it becomes, if you will, theologically meaningless. So this building is theologically meaningless without the presence of God. 
And so Jesus is leaving frustrated with the religious leaders. I would say he's also in pain and in sorrow for so that the people have been deceived and they are following the religious leaders. And we read at the end of chapter 23 in verses 37 through, through 39, we really get Jesus' heart. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Whenever you see it twice, it means it's an emotional statement. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And so Jesus says, listen, there were so many times. He says, me, not God, me, I was willing to protect you. When the, when, the, when the people came from the other countries, when the invaders came, I was willing to protect you, but you didn't want me. You didn't want me. And he goes on, verse 38, he goes, See, your house is left to you desolate. We'll talk about that in a second. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, and they had just said it the previous Sunday, we're only a day or two now from the cross, or three, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is going to have to go to the cross first. And then when he returns, that was a, that's an Old Testament prophecy from the Psalms, once again he will be back in the city and people will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We jump into chapter 24. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Now that word departed, the idea of that word is he departs and he's not coming back and it is a highly symbolic uh, word and a highly symbolic action on Jesus' part. So then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, you got it once again, there's the disciples making us all look good. And so they're, like, they're leaving, and Jesus is like, you know, come on, let's go. We're going. I'm not coming back. And, and so they want to show Jesus this beautiful, beautiful building, uh, Herod's 80-year project. And so if you don't know the story of the temple, Solomon built one. Uh, the Babylonians came in a few hundred years later and just leveled it. And when the people came back from Babylon, uh, they built another one. It wasn't so nice. But then uh, a little bit before Jesus was born, they began to build, another, they began to refurbish the one they had. It was called Herod's Temple. The Herods were a family and an 80-year project all the way up till the end when it was destroyed. So they're building this magnificent building. And so the apostles are looking out, the disciples are looking out and saying, Jesus, look at this beautiful place. Uh, verse 2, and Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Now, it's very interesting. He doesn't say, don't you see the temple? Don't you see the building? He says, don't you see all these things? Kind of like, I think he's getting the feeling like, don't you see what's going on here? Don't you realize what is happening at this moment? Assuredly, when Jesus says that, that that's always pay attention Assuredly, I say to you, and then Jesus gives a monster prophecy, absolutely monster prophecy. Not one stone shall be left up here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So Jesus is prophesying that the temple will be destroyed once again, and it happens in 70 AD again when the Romans came in. They didn't intend to do it. They didn't intend to destroy the temple, but there was a fire and then there's tons of gold in it. And so the, to get at all the gold, they had to take the place down piece by piece by piece. So the disciples see this big, beautiful building. It's church, man. It's church, right? That's the way some people are. Look at the big, beautiful church. They see this big, beautiful building. But Jesus sees what happens when people reject him. They reject God. Now, God's desire for his people is, is fairly simple. God desires that people love him 
that they trust, that they trust him, that they obey him, and that they live godly lives. And as some of us have learned the hard way, when we don't do that, disaster is inevitable. Now, we have to, again, put ourselves back into the context of the disciples, or we're really not going to understand how they're viewing this framework. Uh, To little Jewish boys, they would be talking about when you're old enough to go to Jerusalem, you're old enough to go to Passover, this is Passover week, you're old enough to go into the temple. Uh, The city of Jerusalem was like Disney World to them. So, you know, when you're telling some little kid, don't you want to, don't you want to go to Disney World? That's the, the great American thing. Like, you know, you're a bad parent if you don't bring your kid to Disney World. That is not true. Uh, but so, so that would be like Disney World to them. It would be this wonderful, wonderful place that you're going to go. And so you could imagine the disciples are thinking, like, what do you mean it's going to be desolate? What, what, what is that supposed to mean? And, and in the Old Testament, when the temple was destroyed the first time, when the people were exiled, Ezekiel in chapters 9 through 11 tells us that the reason was was that the glory of the Lord had departed from the temple. And that's why the Babylonians were allowed to come in. And, and so Jesus is essentially saying to them, the same thing is going on right now. History is repeating itself. The same thing is going on right now. And Jesus' words must have been such a shock to the disciples Now, again, we have to put ourselves into first century Jewish mindset. We talk about, as Christians, If, by the way, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're very glad that you're here. I know a lot of this seems like far out there stuff that we're talking about. But at the very beginning of the Bible, it says God made the heavens and the earth. So if you can believe that God could make the heavens, the earth, the universe out of nothing, believing the rest of the Bible is not really all that difficult. If he can do that, he can do anything uh, but, but Jewish people, we think about the first coming of Jesus and we think about the second coming of Jesus, but that's not the way that they, they thought about it. They thought about it that it was going to be just sort of one event, that, that, the, that the Messiah would come, he would establish his kingdom, and that was it. Then it would be off to the years of glory. Now, we know, because we have the, what we call the New Testament, that there's an in-between time between the first coming and the second coming. We call that the church age, and that was a complete mystery to them. And sure enough, in 70 AD, the, the 40 years later, maybe a little less, the temple was destroyed. Now, when, when the apostles are hearing this, this would be absolutely impossible to them to believe. I mean, the temple was for really, when you consider both temples put together, for a thousand years, it was the center of Jewish life. And, and Herod's temple was considered by many to be the most beautiful building in the entire world. And it was, it was in, you know, still architects are wondering. They, it was destroyed so badly, there's just, people argue over where it actually was located. But yet the big rocks are there, and they're wondering, how did they get those big rocks into place? How did they move them? And they said there was, some scholars say there was 10,000 guys working on it at a time. It was just this, this magnificent thing. And so they would find this hard to believe. Now, as we go into the text that we're going to talk about for you Bible students, contextually speaking, we see that Jesus is speaking literally. I literally telling you, this building is going to come down. He's not speaking figuratively. He's not speaking spiritually. And for that sense, because of the context, I believe 
he will still be speaking literally, which is why we talked about last week. Some people believe everything was fulfilled by 70 AD. Others believe that there's a lot of it to be in the future, which is why I am a futurist, because he is speaking literally. And, and I believe that Jesus is giving his disciples a look into the future in what he calls, in verse 21, a time of great tribulation. Now, again, the timing is, people argue about the timing. We don't argue about the second coming. We don't argue any. We do, no, some people argue. But they debate the timing of that. That's, that's not what I really want to do this morning. I'll, various places, my position will be known. But, but I really want us to understand that in addition to what Jesus is teaching, he's giving us tremendous training for our own lives. So, there's a, so, so no matter what position you come from in regards to the timing of Jesus' return and the events of Jesus' return, there's stuff that we all have to know, that we all have to be ready for in order for Jesus to come. Because, uh, you know, up until now, the people who have met Jesus who are no longer alive, how have they met him? Not by his returning. They met him by death. And so, so these, these principles will apply whether we meet Jesus by him coming for us or we meet Jesus in, in death. Verse 3, I want to read twice. It says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So let's go slowly now. Now as he sat, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, some of your Bible versions may say at the beginning of chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse. Mount of Olives, Olivet Discourse, Olivet Teaching. That's where we get that from. The disciples came to him privately. No more public ministry. Now every, the teaching is all taking place in a, in a smaller context with his, with his disciples, with the apostles. And they say, tell us when will these things be? So you might want to circle when in your Bible. That's why it's good to bring your own Bible. When will these things be? Presumably they're asking, well, when's the destruction of the temple going to happen? Like, I don't want to be in town when that happens. I don't want to be around. When will that happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So basically they're saying, what's the sign of the end of history and the beginning of your reign, uh, which we know as uh, when he comes, it's what, the, what we call the day of the Lord, which is a period of God's judgment. And when we talk about the end times, you know, uh, let's just talk about salvation for a second. When you become a Christian, it is an event, but sanctification is a process. Think of the end times the same way. There is a beginning point. Uh, you could argue when Jesus ascended into heaven or the day of Pentecost, that was the beginning point. People have made that argument very well. But there is a process that's going to take place all the way uh, in, until the end. And so the disciples are with Jesus and they, they have a question for him. They're like, okay, Jesus, we heard what you said. When uh, are we going to see who you really are? When are you going to reveal yourself to the world as our Messiah and our King? Now, we go, well, they're not going to see it till the second coming. But they're not thinking like that at all. They're never going to think, he, they think he's never going to leave. They're like, we're on the edge of this. This is probably why Judas Iscariot stayed as long as he did and eventually gave up. Because he's like, this is not going down the way I wanted it to go down. Because he was hoping maybe for a good government job with a pension and great health insurance or something like that. And so, and so they thought he would never leave. 
So, so they ask for a sign. Scholar, scholars debate uh, when he says a sign of your coming and the end of your age. Is that one question or two? Here's the interesting thing. The entirety might be one question from the apostles. They might be like, okay, so, so we know when you come, there's going to be a sign of your coming. When you come, there's going to be signs that accompany you announcing yourself as Messiah, and that will usher in the end of the age. Now, we have to, again, step back. We have to analyze what we call Jewish eschatology. Eschatology we talked about last week, the study of the last things. And it's certainly different than uh, first century Jewish eschatology, certainly different than ours would be. I'm going to break it down into four categories. It's much more detailed than this, but for time's sake, I want to do this. The first thing, they, can, they believed that the end times would be ushered in by a time of great uh, tribulation and turmoil. Now, they had been conquered by so many different people over the years. I'm sure they thought this was happening every time, and certainly they would have associated that with the Roman Empire. So, number one, check. We're there. One down, three to go. The the second thing would be that there would be a forerunner to the Messiah. Uh, Isaiah prophesied that there would be someone coming out. He would be a voice in the wilderness. He would be saying, make way, make your path straight, make way for the way of the Lord. And, And so they clearly thought back in that day, it could be John the Baptist. Check number two. We're doing pretty well. But then they thought that the Messiah would come and defeat his enemies and God's people who were still scattered and people who were not living in the area of Jerusalem would then begin to come back. So the question was, is Jesus the guy who's going to usher in step three and step four? So they think they got the boxes checked on one and two. Apostles believe he is. Religious leaders don't believe he is. And so that's what they're talking about. So what does Jesus do? After he told them about the destruction of the temple, he starts to tell them about uh, the sign of his coming and the end of the age. But he does something else that's very important for all of us as well, is he starts to say also that if you are a follower of Jesus, you must be ready. Now, there's other things that they don't know that Jesus does not say in this sermon here. They're not ready to hear it. We talked about it last week. They're not ready to hear it. And it will be much later on after the cross, the resurrection, the ascension to heaven, as they begin to understand what happened with Jesus. And and so it will be later on, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that the Apostle Paul talks about something called the rapture of the church. Now, it's very interesting. It means to be caught up, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And a lot of people say they don't believe in the rapture of the church until you say, but it's right there in the Bible. And they'll say, okay, 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 I believe in that. I don't believe in the timing of that. So I said last week I come from a, you know, a long history of believing that that will happen before this great tribulation, that God will come down, he will meet, the, he, he's meet his people in the air, and then that will be the beginning of the great tribulation, and then God's people will come back with him. That's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in the day of the Lord and the day of judgment. But all of that comes before the um, second coming, And the timing of that, I will admit, is up to debate, but not the second coming. So in this in-between time, and you'll get get, people to agree there's an in-between time, but if you you take the position of of that that I take, 
that, that there's a, a seven-year period in between. You're saying, where do they get this stuff from? Daniel 9, 17. And it, it's known as um, what Jesus talks about, the great tribulation. Again, people disagree on the timing. I actually like the fact that people disagree on the timing. I respect the various views, but, but, and I think it keeps us all on our toes. I do love every view that espouses the fact that we really don't. Jesus is going to say a little bit, no man knows the day or the hour. I like the fact that he could come back at any moment. I like the fact that we have to be ready. You know, uh, do, do you ever, some of you are very spiritual, so you don't think like this. I understand this. But did you ever think of doing something that might be construed as you leaving the faith? And then all of a sudden you come to your senses and you go, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Jesus might return when that happens. I'm not going to do that. I know some of you are like, I would never do that. It happens to me a lot. And so, and so I'm like, I'm not going to be a false convert. I'm not, I'm not letting that happen to me. And, and so I like the fact that we keep, uh, you know, God keeps us on our toes, that he could come at any moment. Um, under this scenario, uh, if, if you take this, uh, this belief in this seven-year tribulation, uh, verses 4 through 14 is the beginning of the tribulation, and I'm going to put an asterisk on that for a second. Uh, 15 to 20, although you could really argue the divisions of the verses here, would be the middle of it. Uh, we'll look at that next week. 21 through 28 is the end of it, and 29 through 31 is the second coming. Now, you say, why do you put an asterisk on 4 through 14? It comes down to this. Uh, remember, I told you that I was born and bred with the pre-tribulational rapture view, but I was also born and, and bred with that uh, verses 4 through 8 are the time we live in now, and 9 through 14 are the beginning of the tribulation. And one of the things that made me kind of uncomfortable, and I think that I would have to say that I've switched out of that view, I know for some of you that's complete heresy, is that it's led to so many conspiracy theories. And so I, I, I do believe that there's a lot of stuff that's in here that we're going to be like, well, we're seeing this stuff right now, but we've been seeing it for 2,000 years. And we don't know if the world, the, the, the scripture talks about the restrainer in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Holy Spirit and the church that's sort of keeping the world together. What happens if the, the, Holy, the, the Holy Spirit just kind of takes our world and goes, Oop, and let's go? Who knows how unraveled this place could become? So, so we really don't know. So I'm not a big conspiracy theory guy. That's why you don't, every time there's a war, or there's a rumor of war, or the president steps into North Korea or something like that, you don't, you don't, you don't see me going, why is that? Because I've sort of gone away from my roots in, in, in that, and I sort of lean towards all of the 4 through 14 is the beginning of the, of the Great Tribulation, but that's okay. You can email me and tell me why I'm wrong. It really doesn't matter to me. Um, so, but but that, that is still keeps me in my view, which I haven't changed over the years, but, but it, does, that is, it does modify it some. And, and so to the religious leaders of, of Jesus' day, uh, again, they would have never seen the Messiah coming first as a suffering savior and second as a conquering king and judge, and so they totally missed it. Well, Will the disciples and their generation see it all? No. 
How do, how do you know that, Pastor Jim? Uh, well, we're still here. We're here. <laughs> right? So that's why I don't believe it all took place uh, before 70 AD, although there's moderations on that on, and people I know who hold to that. Some of, their, some of their thinking, I think there's a lot of clarity to it. I just don't agree with them on it. And much of the language here is about the future. Do, again, do we have a lot of these things on earth now? Yes. Uh, but again, I, I, it's possible not to the degree which it will be because we don't know the scale of the destruction. I mean, we think of a world right now, you know, with, you know, we talk about storms and stuff like that. Just imagine if the world really, if God's, you know, holding on to the world tightly and he just lets up a little bit. Any of you ever been in a hurricane or a tornado or something like that? What if the world was like that all the time? What if we, we think about wars and what if, what if there was just wars everywhere all the time? You know, what if all the nuclear power of, and now I'm being a conspiracy theory guy, uh, what if all the nuclear power was, was, was unleashed on, on the world? I mean, you know, after we destroy it once, what are we going to go after the moon and Jupiter and all that kind of stuff? I mean, this is, this is we, don't, we don't know a, a lot of these things. And so at the end of verse 6, Jesus says, these things, we'll see in a minute, must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Verse 80 says, these are the beginning of sorrows. A lot, of, a lot of versions say birth pangs. What is it? He says, this is the be- in other words, this is the beginning of a long labor. Some of you women know what that's like, a, a long labor. And, and, and until, you know, until what that will be, that long labor might be until what the Old Testament Jesus called the time of tribulation. Another very important point that it's very important to understand this when you're reading the Bible, is when you read this passage, and if you read ahead, I commend you on that, you just sit there and you go, it sounds like he's talking in the future, but he keeps saying you. So that really looks like he's talking right directly to the, to the apostles, um, but, but, it, but it's not. Often, and you really see this in the Old Testament, when a, when a prophet speaks prophetically, he starts speaking to the unborn people of the future. When he's speaking prophetically, he's actually moved, if you will, into the time when he's speaking to the people who are living then. Remember we said last week, a lot of times you, we don't understand prophecy till we read it, that it's, when it's past. And we go, oh, how could they not have figured that out? The same reason we can't figure anything out. Because a lot of times we don't understand stuff till it's in the past. And so the same thing happens with prophecy. And so it also explains why, why most futurists believe that Jesus has moved ahead to what is known as the Great Tribulation. And Jewish scholars would at least agree with that. They would say, yeah, we do believe that Messiah won't come until after a period of Great Tribulation. Now, a lot of it, we've talked about this a little bit. The logical question is, why isn't Jesus more specific with his time? I think a lot of it is he wants us to be ready. Jesus seems to have no problem with different schools of thought regarding him. He seems to have no problem with different denominations and stuff like that. And we agree on, we've said before, we agree on 90, 90 to 95% of it. The other stuff, you know, we can have a little bit of interesting discussion about, but it's not, it's not that big a deal. It's not critical to the gospel. And I think Jesus just always wants us to be ready. He wants us to be ready. He wants us to have a glorious expectation of his return. So I like to think of it this way. I, I, I'm, my bags are packed. I'm ready to go today. Some of you are ready for me to go today. 
I'm ready to go today, but I'm also ready to live as long as the Lord wants me to keep me on this earth. And, and I hope and pray that I will continue to work with many of you to rescue as many people as we possibly can from the kingdom of darkness and to call them into the kingdom of light. And so I'm ready for either. I, I, I'm ready for either. The Apostle Paul, the same thing. He said, it's, it's, hey, for me to go to Christ is better, but to be with you is necessary. So that, 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 that's fine. I'm, I'm fine either way. And a specific date, just think what it would do. It would cause most of us just to be lazy, right? If you're like, oh, the Lord's not coming for 10 years. I got plenty of time. Anything you ever planned to do when you were, I'm going to get started on it. And now that was 20 years ago. <laughs> you got any things in your life, you know? I'm going to clean that basement, you know? <laughs> you know? You know, before you know it, your wife's like, you know, you're starting to look like a hoarder. <laughs> you know, so, so there's all kinds of things that we plan that we're going to do, and we don't. And, it, and it's so easy to get, to get lazy about such things instead of being prepared to meet the Lord. So here, the Lord, I think, in a lot of ways, speaks pastorally, and he talks about persistent perseverance, and that's more important than having perfect prophetic timing. It's very interesting in Thessalonians, after telling the pe- people about the rapture of the church, and some people are probably all nervous about it, the Apostle Paul says, comfort one another with these things. And then in chapter 5, when he talks about the next chapter, he talks about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And and he says, and keep comforting one another as you guys have been doing. So we're supposed to be comforted by these things. So that was the longest introduction in the history of sermons. So let's get on with it now. Um, So three words we want to look at today. Uh, Prepared is the first one. Prepared. Be prepared. If you're ever a Boy Scout or a Cub Scout, you know you got to be prepared. Jesus says this, verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to, ha- said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For, a lot of times in the Bible that you could substitute the word because, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, I am the Anointed One, and will deceive many. Now, for those of you who love this stuff, I mean, you love this stuff. You're like, Pastor Jim, I wish you were doing one verse at a time. And we were 19 years in the book of Matthew. I really do wish that you were going to do that. You just want to write in your margin, Revelation 6, because a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about today is mentioned in Revelation 6. Here we have one of the most common warnings in the word of God. Jesus simply says this, keep your eyes open and don't be deceived. Keep reading the book, keep knowing what's going on, and don't be deceived. People are going to come along, they're going to say all kinds of different stuff. Stay calm. Stay calm. Don't get all hyped up about it. And think about it, there have been many deceivers, there are and there will be, and sadly, Jesus has to tell us these things because many people are deceived. Now, a lot of people aren't walking around claiming to be God, although some are, but many have and will claim to be the Messiah. So what is he talking about here? Be careful of a religious deception. Be very, very careful of a religious deception. In the last century, let me throw out a couple names at you. Jim Jones, some of you know who he was. Uh, David Koresh. Now, now, some of you is like Pastor Jim. Those are like the two biggest whack jobs that lived in the United States, and there were cult leaders Well, you think that stuff's not going on today? You live in a very small world if you don't. 
That stuff is still alive and kicking in the United States of America. There's some stuff that we think we're so civilized on and stuff that doesn't happen here, and we have to be, we have to, we have to be kidding. We're, we're becoming the, the, the world's capital of sex trafficking. I mean, how bad is that? How bad is that? There's just so much that goes on that we don't, we, we think that we're so civilized, we're Americans, we're so much better than everybody else. And here's an interesting thing when you talk about deceivers. People don't talk about the second coming much at all anymore. One of the major denominations of, our, of, our, of the United States of America, considered to be a solid uh, denomination, is in the process of changing their doctrines on the, on the last things. And I'm not saying they're going in a super bad direction, but, but they're, they're backing down off of some of the things that they stood by for, for years. And people, you know, you may be sitting here like, <laughs> this is going to be the next couple of weeks. About, about the second coming. See you later, man. I'll, I'll be here on Wednesday for the free dinner, but I'm not coming the rest of, the, I'm not coming the rest of these things. So, but, but what, let's talk about deception. What is the number one thing that people want in the church in America today? How to be happy. That's what everybody wants. How to get everything I want from God. Vending machine God. G5. Happiness. Oh, there it is. Great. Got any more money? Right? That, that's what everybody wants. They, they want to have everybody. You're going to tell me that's not a deception of a sword? And Jesus is really, why isn't Jesus talking about that here? Now, I'm all for being happy. Trust me. Don't leave here being miserable. One of the reasons why I changed, a, tweaked a little bit of my, of my end times theology because I don't like the downer, the Debbie downer. No, if your name's Debbie, I don't mean to insult you. I don't like the, the Debbie downer of, of some of the end times, you know, theories that are out there. I want to look forward to the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the blessed hope the scripture calls us. So I want to be, I want to be in that camp. And so there's, there's been all kinds of, of, of cult leaders and deceptions that's out there to take us away from the true gospel message. And, and, and you can imagine when the world goes haywire, people promising to fix it, it will be warmly embraced. And one of them is known as the Antichrist. You want to know more about him? Come next Sunday. Um, so anyway, so, so why is deception listed first? Why is deception listed first? Because it is the most dangerous and has eternal consequences. So what is basically Jesus saying in our language? Don't believe the hype. Don't believe the hype. Look for Jesus Christ, not Antichrist. Verse 6 through 8. Uh, again, want to read this two times. And you will hear, Jesus says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginnings of sorrows. So let's go slowly. Now, again, you could make the case that we hear about all these things now. We just don't know what it will be like if the restrainer says, I'm going to let up a little. So what we may be seeing right now may only be a very little bit of what's coming. It may be it, but it may be a little bit. We don't know. And he says, and you will hear of wars. So what, what is that? He's going to say, you're going to start to hear, and you will continue to hear about wars. Now, if you watch TV all the time, that's all you hear about. If you watch the news, that's all you hear about. 
He says, see that you are not troubled. Uh, A.T. Robertson, the great uh, biblical scholar, says this, don't lose your wits about you. Don't lose your wits about it. We might say in our kind of language, don't freak out. Don't be like, oh, no, here it comes, right? That, that's, that's just the wrong attitude. Okay, see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. Not like, oh, they should or it's possible. They must come to pass. Look at this. But the end is not yet. Hmm, what does he mean? I think he means the end is not yet. So what, so what are these? These are, these are birth pangs. This is false labor. What do you call it, ladies? The Braxton Hicks, right? That's what you call it. Like, and, and, and it's starting early. It's not time. You know, first baby, you know, you're calling your doctor 2 a.m. And they're like, it's just, it's okay. You're not, you're not due for eight months. <laughs> you know, no, it doesn't happen that, that early. But you're not due for a long time. Why don't you call me in the morning? Thanks for calling. And, uh, and, so, and so you hang up the phone. And so that's just the beginning. He says, for nation, verse 7, will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. Again, some versions say birth pangs. That, but remember, he told us in verse 6 that the end is not yet. So let's call it what it is. Humanity. Humanity, under the weight of sin, cannot maintain peace. We just can't do it. You look at world history and the t- amount of time when there is no wars is basically insignificant. There has always been wars. And, and sometimes, I don't know about you, I, watch the, I turn on the television and I watch these people. I'm like, what are they on about? I mean, gosh, are you kidding me? They're just fighting about everything. Like, go live in your country, stay in your border, and, you know, go to work, come home, you know, do whatever you do at night, get up tomorrow and do it again, and, and then go on vacation. I mean, just really, what, what is everybody fighting about all the time? But we can't seem to get it right. And we are under the weight of sin. We can't maintain peace. And, and at times, and who knows what it could be like, but at times it seems like the world buckles under the weight of sin it just you know the the tsunamis and stuff like that and now i sound like a conspiracy theory guy but but you're just wondering what is going on sometimes in our world and even when we're not at war the threat of war always looms I mean, my goodness, you fly a drone across the Middle East and somebody shoots it out of the sky the next day. We might be going to war, right? It just, this, is just, this is mankind. Jesus says, let your soul have peace. I, I know about all this. All this stuff has to happen. It must happen. I know all about it. Vote yes. Let your, let your you know, write legislators, write your senators, whatever. Yes, sure. But... He, Jesus is saying, you got to trust me in this. I I know this is the way things are going to go down. So it's so important for us to remember that God is in control. It's all on his timetable. And don't let false labor deceive you. Start to relax a little bit more. Be ready, but be relaxed. I got myself in trouble in the last service, so I might as well in this one too, so you can enjoy laughing at what an idiot I can be at times. 
You're like, we knew that, Pastor Jim. You don't really need to tell us. Um, we, we have three children. We, have our, we had our first, and uh, Ryan was, was born in Hoboken. We lived there, and, and he was, the doctor was in New York City. And uh, I, all I kept hoping was, I hope it's not during rush hour when everybody's going into the city. So he pleasantly came at 5 a.m. The Pam said, I think it's time to go to the doctor at 5 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Now, some of you are like 5 a.m., but that's what time I get up. I've always gotten up that time. Actually, now I've been getting up a little earlier than that. My wife's like, what is up with you? I'm like, I don't know. So anyway, very considerate of Ryan. Comes at 5 a.m., and so we zip into the tunnel, and it's just a wonderful, glorious time. We have our little baby boy. Of course, 18-hour labor. They have to talk to Pam how glorious that was. And so, and so we, have our, we have our little boy, and, and that's it. So then we got pregnant and, uh, with, with, with Jessica, and so um, Pam goes into labor, and it's 10 o'clock at night. Well, when you get up at 4 or 5 in the morning, you go to bed at 10 o'clock at night. So I'm lying in bed there. I go, eh, I think it's false labor. <laughs> and she goes, and she, and she says, no, 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 we really got to go. We really got to go. And I said, nah, nah, I remember last time. We didn't have to do five in the morning. And, and so why don't, we just, why don't we just get some sleep? And she's like, we're going. So, so we went to the hospital. I was uh, relaxed and somewhat ready. And so then we came to our third child, Tim. And, and so Tim, actually, Pam calls me at work. It's about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And Pam says to me, I think it's time to go uh, to the hospital. And I said, I have a lot of work still to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> So she goes, you want me to get another husband? <laughs> so so I, I drive home, and, and so we, we think it's, uh, you know, here we got to go. And so we get in the car. Oh, forgive me, God. <laughs> so we get in the car, and, and Pam is like, <laughs> and I go, we need gas. <laughs> so she's like, you are not ready. We need gas. And so we pull up to the hospital. She goes, why don't you just drop me off and you go park the car? I'm like, that's a really good idea. <laughs> so, so, but with each child, I became more relaxed. I can't say the same for her. Um, but, but so we want to be ready, but we want to be relaxed. And so, but notice that Jesus is not trying to make us less enthusiastic about the second coming. He's trying to make us aware of of the end times deceivers. Uh, Will there be a massive acceleration of things during the tribulation? I believe the answer to that question is yes. Will the believers in Jesus Christ be here? I believe the answer is no. I find that very comforting, as the Apostle Paul says. A lot of people believe that we will be here. I'm not going to fight with you over that. I hope we're not. I hope you're wrong specifically because I don't want to be here. Um, but, 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 but we know that things probably are going to heat up. The United States, people are like, where are we? Boy, there's a couple hints that uh, well, you might get us in the Old Testament, but you've really got to stretch some stuff to make that happen. Probably uh, some people think that you know, there'll be some problems over here that we can't get involved in these things or we'll join up with Europe. I, I don't really know. Uh, Jesus' point is, I think, let the birth pains keep you on your guard. Be ready. Um, but I'll say this to you. If God does pull the church out and you are still here, buckle up and stay faithful. Buckle up and stay faithful. That takes us to the second one, and that is the word persecuted. Persecuted. Be ready to be persecuted. 
I want to read verses 9 through 12 two times. Uh, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, uh, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Now, what I hate to say about this is I believe that this passage is distinctly talking about followers of Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, the Bible does teach that many will, even if you say, well, I thought you said the church won't be here, that will, many will come to Christ during that period. And, and so uh, it says then, then could be a, could be a, a change of time, um, and then they, the people in authority, will deliver you, Jesus talking to the people in the future, up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations. Look at this, for my name's sake. You're not going to be hated, Jesus saying, you're not going to be hated for what you do. And there, there will be people who will be reading this. You're not going to be hated for what you do, but for who you follow. And while you seek peace and joy from the Lord, you're going to receive the opposite from the world. He says, and then many will be offended. Some of your versions say, will fall away, will betray one another, and will hate one another. That could actually mean that people who fall away from the faith may be turning in Christians. Verse 11, then many uh, false prophets will rise up, and deceive many, and because of, lawless, because of lawlessness will abound. People who probably once considered themselves false converts, once considered themselves to be followers of Jesus, are going to start doing all kinds of lawless things. They're not going to care about the law of God, and the result, the love of many will grow cold. So here Jesus says, as things begin to heat up, nominal Christianity will begin to die. And I'm going to tell you right now, loved ones, this is happening right before our eyes in the United States of America. The gospel seems to be spreading wildly with some strange beliefs in, in South America and Africa and Asia, mainly because what happens is the good missionaries go in and the weird guys, the deceivers, follow them. And so, But we see this happening in the United States of America right now is the people who hate Christianity are growing and growing strong. People who are uh, full-on followers of Jesus Christ are growing stronger in their beliefs. And what we call the mushy middle, the nominal Christians are dropping like flies. That's why the fastest-growing faith group in the United States of America is the nuns, not the people who work with the priests, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, is the people who declare no religious affiliation because it's not worth it anymore. It's not worth the price that you got to pay for being ridiculed by people and being involved in all of this stuff and being thought to be narrow-minded and, and, and homophobic and bigoted. And I, you're nicer than me. I challenge people on that. I'm like, when have you ever been treated that way by a Christian? Really? Really? And so, and so that for them, it's not worth it. And so the mushy middle is disappearing. So if we think people hate followers of Jesus now, Jesus says it's going to get worse. But again, the scripture teaches many people will come to faith in the midst of the persecution, while others are falling away, becoming lawless, not, begin, not following Jesus anymore, and they begin to embrace false prophets. And the result is 
that, 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 that the further Christians move, and, and this is whether it's the end times or it's now, the further Christians move from obeying the Lord, the more cold their love grows towards Jesus and towards his church. We call this apostasy. It is a falling away from the faith, if you will, where people who sit in church are then uncovered and being exposed as not true followers of Jesus. Some will choose their own way. Some will tire of the battle. For some, and this is something that's foreign to most of us, but you talk to guys in the South, and they'll say, this is a real thing. You know, years ago in the South, around here, you meet somebody, you go, hey, where do you live? That's what we say. Where do you live? Where do you work? Hey, bro. Right? How you doing? Right? <laughs> but, but down South, what they say to you is, where do you go to church? That's what they said for years, but that's changing down there. And now, because in the South, being part of a church is no longer an advantage to being in business, people are saying, well, if it's not an advantage to my business, why should I bother to, to go there? And so today, the words we're hearing are busy, I have to earn a living, I have to sleep, it's too hard, it didn't work. The words are going to change during that time, and you may even find your own family members are going to turn you in. People that you, 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 you know and love are going to turn you in. You say, oh, that, that could never happen. I had a friend from Cuba. He's a pastor in Cuba. And he told me that if, you're, if, if, like, if your neighbor doesn't like something you do, they can just walk down to the government agency and say, hey, those guys said stuff, bad stuff about Castro. And you'll be arrested. And you'll be arrested. You think that could, this stuff couldn't happen? This stuff is already happening in various parts of, of our world. And so they're apostatizing, they're choosing their own way. And the result is, when there's a selfish lack of, uh, for Jesus and the church, what happens is your faith starts to wilt before it, you know it, it's completely gone. And the result of a selfish lack of love for Jesus and the church, before you know it, you will actually start to join the persecutors to save faith. I know people who once walked with Jesus and now they are mockers of the faith because they don't realize that their love has grown cold and they've joined the other side. So it, now I want to just say something before we, before we move on. We're going to move on. Eventually we'll be done. But, uh, but I just wanted to say something that's very, very important for you to understand because I don't want to leave you to leave here all bummed out that, that this is not, a, this apostatizing, this is not Peter denying Jesus the night before the cross. That's not this. This is not you in your job having an opportunity to speak up for the gospel, and you don't, and you go out in your car, and the other guy goes, say you're an apostate. That's not what this is. This is Judas Iscariot forsaking Jesus and going back to the unbelieving world. That's what, that, that's what this is. 1 John 2.19 they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that, they might be made that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. There's an old expression. Uh, they, left the they left the visible church because they were never part of the invisible church. Another old expression goes like this. They left God's earthly family because they were never part of his heavenly family. Jesus said this, John 8, 31, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. 
So, so as we said, the Great Tribulation will have many converts, yet the world will also see many people arrested and persecuted for their faith. And the persecution uh, has been throughout history. And this is what's important to remember when you're persecuted for your faith. They hate Jesus. They hate Jesus. But they can't get to him. But they can get to you. That's what happened to the apostles. They hated Jesus. They killed him. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. So instead of going after Jesus, they couldn't get him. They couldn't touch him. What did they do? They went after the apostles. Now the apostles, they got killed. They're in heaven with Jesus. They're with the Lord. And they can't get after Jesus. They can't get after the apostles. So who they come gunning for next? They come gunning for you. Isn't that a positive and uplifting? Okay? But, but, but that's going to differentiate you. We're going to see in the next section from a true follower versus a false convert. The persecution will get worse. Again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, believe it or not, that evil is being restrained by the Spirit of God, and who knows what's going to happen when he loosens his grip, but for now, we should expect persecution and ridicule. They're just labor pains, because for a follower of Jesus, you must remember this. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Cross now, crown later. Cross now, crown later. That brings us to number three, persevering. Be persevering. Verse 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, I truly think he's talking about the people going through this time, but I think it's a great principle for all of us. And he says, and this gospel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and and he also refers to it as the gospel of the kingdom, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, there's many different ways that the gospel can be preached to all the world. Back then, they thought it may be just the Roman Empire. That's really all they knew that existed. We now have television, internet, uh, all different kinds of things. Revelation talks about there'll be people, walk, there'll be all these evangelists walking around doing it. There'll be an angel going around preaching the gospel. So there's a lot of different ways. And again, while I think this is true for the people at the end, I think it's true for all of us. And it's simply this saving faith, real faith, is seen in endurance. It's seen in endurance. True followers of Jesus are sustained by the enduring power of the Holy Spirit, what we sometimes refer to as sustaining grace or persevering grace, that through whatever trials you and I go through that God allows in our lives, he will sustain us. He will keep us in it. Now, this is the doctrine of what we call the perseverance of the saints, standing firm in the faith in the midst of a world that is not. And I find it encouraging that the Word of God makes lots of promises to those who persevere. Lots of promises to those who persevere. But I think the best promise of all is that God himself promises to to preserve us. That's the best one of all. Not the fact that it really counts on me to do it. I need to take one step at a time. I need to do the right thing at the time. But that God himself preserves us. Persevering includes, verse 14, telling people the gospel, telling people the good news. But it also, I think, includes being part of the good news to the world, of being part of what Jesus has done on the cross. 
If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you may be afraid of these things. I, I would be too. But the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of that, offers you the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. The scripture says, to whoever will repent and believe. Whoever will turn to God, repent means to turn, turn to God, realize you're going your own way, turn to him. I'm going to turn to you, God, and I'm going to believe. I'm going to put my trust in Jesus Christ. So what does this tell us, friends, when he talks about that we have to endure and preach the gospel? It tells us what? That we have a missionary faith. That's what we all are. Every one of you is a missionary. Don't mistake it. You leave this place today and you go out to be a missionary in the world where you are. And, and it also includes preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the, the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth and the reign of King Jesus. And here's the most important question you can ever ask yourself. Are you part of that kingdom? Are you go, why are you going to heaven? Why are you going into the kingdom? You say, oh, I'm a good person. That's not, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. It's because you've put your trust in Jesus. Too many people seem to think that we just make a decision and that's it, but that's just the beginning. True followers of Jesus are about his work. And here's the sad thing to me, and maybe it's just taking me a lot of years to learn this and to observe it and to experience it myself. A lot of people leave Christianity because of the suffering that they endure or that they encounter. But, you know, to me... It's the suffering and the fact that you stay in it that's evidence that God has got his, got his, you know, his hooks in you, is evidence that, he, that he's got a hold on you. And, and did you ever think that your suffering and, and hanging in there by the grace of God is a visual picture to the world of the truth of the gospel? Did you ever think that your suffering... And your hanging in there is a visual reminder to people of our own persevering Savior. When you can look people in the eye and say, I persevered because he persevered. I'm staying in it because he stayed in it for me. And who cares if they think you're crazy? They'll get in their car and they will be confronted by the Spirit of God. You see, you can talk a good game, you can know all the verses, but when you're living it and the Spirit of God is clearly seen upon you and you're hanging in there because you love him, because he first loved you, that is a message that the world needs to see and to hear. And if you're here and you are suffering Do you know that your suffering and your continuing in the faith is a reminder that the one who saved you is keeping you? That the one who saved you is preserving you? And it's a reminder when you should be ticked off at God and yet you still love him that you are part of the kingdom of heaven. That you are part of the kingdom of God. I hope and pray we will embrace our suffering for things like that. I pray that that will help us to be prepared to endure persecution and to realize that our king is preserving us so we can persevere. Well, let's stand and pray.